for the scripture reading. This morning we turn again to Isaiah chapter 9, and we read again verses 2 through 7. For our visitors here, I say again because last night we read this passage and we considered from verse 6 the names, the mighty God and the everlasting Father. And the intention this morning is to look at that last name in verse 6, the Prince of Peace. Let's read these verses again, Isaiah 9, starting at verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and, I would remove the word not, and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian when God raised up Judge Gideon to deliver his people from their misery. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. And the point there in verse 5 is all the equipment of warfare and the clothing of the warrior's will become a burning and a fuel for fire. They won't be needed anymore, burnt up, because there's going to be peace. Why? Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the, gov- of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So far we read, God's holy word. We're going to concentrate on that last name in verse 6 and then also verse 7. The prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why do we celebrate Christmas? Maybe in the midst of all the holiday busyness and the festivities and and maybe the cooking, maybe even taking place this morning, we, we can forget or lose sight of what we're actually celebrating. And I suppose that's partly exactly the reason for a Christmas service to bring us back to the reason this season is so full of joy. What are we really celebrating today? 
Well, I think the essence of it all is captured very well for us in the words that the angels sang on the night of Jesus' birth. When they lit up the night sky of Bethlehem and they sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward the men or the people of God's good pleasure. Glory to God. That first of all. At Christmas time, we simply bring glory to God for what He has done in the wonder of the Incarnation. God coming in the flesh. Now, we've looked at that in the last week or two, but it's so staggering. God Almighty, the Infinite One, the Eternal One, the Immense One, the One who is also pure Spirit, enters into His creation and becomes a baby. The potter becomes clay. That, first of all, at Christmas time, we simply adore God and worship Him for the amazing wonder He has performed in the incarnation, in the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. But then, second of all, we also rejoice in the peace that that babe brings with Him. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. This is not just the birth of God in the flesh, but this is the birth of the one who brings healing, who brings salvation, who will obtain and establish peace for his people. And that's also captured for us in the words of the angels and on earth, peace towards the men of God's good pleasure. Because of this child, there is peace. Between God and His people, there's peace in our hearts and there is the sure confidence of peace for our future evermore with God in glory because of the wonder that God has done in the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know this peace, beloved? That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. And that's really the focus here in Isaiah 6 and that's going to be what we concentrate on in the preaching this morning. In the last two weeks, we've looked at the first four names that are given there at the end of verse, in Isaiah 9, at the end of verse 6. We've seen that Jesus is wonderful, that Jesus himself is the wonder. He is the wonder of wonders because he is God in the flesh. That's who this child is. He is the wonderful act of God in saving his people. We've also seen that Jesus is counselor. That is, Jesus himself is wisdom and knowledge. He is endowed with all wisdom and knowledge and insight to guide and to lead the people that are under him. He's a perfect counselor who cares for his people, who listens, and who knows exactly how to instruct them and lead them. We also saw last night that Jesus is the mighty God. Right? Jesus is the great warrior, the mighty champion, the hero, the mighty man of valor who is able to and who does crush all his and our enemies. Right? He has his garment stained with the blood of his enemies. He crushes the head of the serpent and he gives victory to his people. And he defends them and protects them against all the devices of the evil one. He is the mighty God. And we also saw last night that Jesus is the everlasting Father. That He is the one who has a fatherly pity and compassion 
and love towards his people. And he has that pity and compassion and love towards us without end and without beginning. He is the everlasting Father. And now, this morning, as the climax of all these names, we could even say as the summary of all these names, Jesus is also given the name, the Prince of Peace. Again, that's the name we look at this morning. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. We take as our theme, the Prince of Peace. We look at three things under that theme. First, the identity of this prince. Second, the government of this prince. And then third, the explanation for this prince. Now, because of the Christmas program this morning, I was anticipating that there would be a few visitors among us. So for the visitors' sake, and also just as a good review for all of us, I want to remind us that at this particular time in Isaiah's prophecy, there was no peace in the land of Judah. In fact, there was anything but peace among the people. First, on the political scene, there was warfare and the promise of only more warfare to come in the future. At this point in the history, the ten tribes of Israel to the north of Judah and the nation of Syria had made an alliance against Judah. Israel and Syria were going to try to attack Judah and destroy it. So what did wicked King Ahaz do, king of Judah? He took the money out of the temple and he gave it to the king of Assyria and made an alliance with him against those two nations. But that alliance with the world empire of Assyria wouldn't do anything. Because in just a few short years, after that world empire of Assyria defeated Syria, and then defeated the ten tribes of Israel and scattered them, the world empire of Assyria also began marching down against Judah. And we read in the Bible that Assyria invaded the land of Judah. This was still during the lifetime of Isaiah, during the reign of Hezekiah. Marched down into Judah. He destroyed all the fenced cities of the country so that only Jerusalem is left standing. And even then, as you children know, if it were not for God performing a miracle and slaying 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, Jerusalem too would have been completely destroyed and plundered. The point is, these days of Isaiah 9 were not days of peace, politically speaking. But second, and even more importantly, from a spiritual point of view, there was no peace. The people of Judah were, by and large, walking in great sin. We saw that a week ago. King Ahaz was promoting every kind of evil. He was offering his own children on the fires to Molech. The people were consulting with, with those who had familiar spirits and with wizards. This was devil worship. And the people were, in their interactions with each other, full of cruelty and haughtiness and injustice. There was no peace. And then third, above all, the reality was this. There was no peace with God because of the people's sins. In Isaiah 48, verse 22, we read, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. And then nine chapters later, you hear the exact same thing. Isaiah 57, verse 21 there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And all of this is really getting at the heart of what true peace is. We should now ask that question. What is peace? Well, peace is not just the absence of warfare. That might be a start, but 
peace is more than just a mere cessation of hostilities. Peace also involves removing the reason for why there should be warfare to begin with. So that there's no more reason or for warfare or threat of warfare. Peace really is friendship. Peace is being in agreement with one another, being in harmony with each other. Peace really is rooted in love. Peace means you are of the same mind, you have the same thought. And peace ultimately involves peace with God. Because if you don't have peace with God, then you don't have any peace. But if you have peace with God, then you have peace. Peace in every circumstance. And that's true because God is ultimately the one with whom we have to do with regard to everything. God is the great judge. If you have peace with him, then you have peace indeed. It's true because God is life. God is the overflowing fountain of all good. God is truth. And when you have peace with God, when you are in harmony with God, then you enjoy God's smile. And you enjoy his blessing. And you enjoy his love and his friendship and his protection and his power and wisdom. And then you can triumphantly say, if God be for me, then who can be against me? You see, then you have peace. Then you can be at rest and have tranquility. If you have peace with God, then you can say, whatever my circumstances, it is well with my soul. To have peace with God is everything. And to expand on what I said a moment ago, outside of peace with God, there's no, there is no peace. There's no peace with the devil. The, the devil doesn't know peace. There's no peace with others because there's no love in the heart of sinful and spiritually dead man. There's no peace with yourself because without God, there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no light in our world. You see, that's the destructive nature of sin. There's no peace, God says. There's no peace to the wicked. And to have peace with God, what do you need? Well, you need to be in harmony with God. You need to be in harmony with His law. You need God to approve of you so that God does smile upon you. To have peace with God, we need the removal of sin. We need to be given that perfect, right, righteous standing before God. That's what peace is. Now, that's what this prophecy from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 is all about. That's why it's so comforting, because this son that is given to us, this child that is born, is the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. And now that word prince here isn't communicating that this child is, in a sense, just a king in waiting, right? He's not a king, he's a prince. No, that's not the idea. But it's emphasizing that at the time of his incarnation and birth, this child is the legal, rightful heir to the throne. He's the prince. He is the one who is heir to the throne. We could, we could for all intents and purposes, say king. He is the king of peace. And what kind of a king is he? What characterizes him as a prince? What characterizes his rule? Peace. He's the prince of peace. That is, he's the chief ruler and administrator of peace. 
It means he's the one who secures and obtains peace for his people. He goes to war as the king on behalf of his people to obtain peace for them. He's the one who makes peace. He, as the king, is the one who proclaims peace. He's the one who establishes peace in the hearts of his people. He is the one who rules his people in peace. Really, because his name is Prince of Peace, as we've seen in these other names, what it's emphasizing is that he is peace. That's his name. This is part of his very being and character, that he is peace. And that's true of this child, because this child, even in who he is, is God and man dwelling in perfect harmony in one person, the second person of the Trinity. That's peace. That's, that's harmony between God and man. And he's the prince of peace because, all, in addition to that, within himself there's no conflict at all. He fulfills all his good pleasure. He's the king of, of mighty power. He's never frustrated by anything or what anyone does in opposition to him. He has perfect peace because he accomplishes his will and good pleasure. He's the prince of peace because even with the citizens in his kingdom, he sweetly bends their rules. He sweetly bends their wills so that they are gladly bending the knee and worshiping and serving him as king. His whole kingdom, his whole kingdom is a kingdom of peace. That's who this child is. And beloved, that's who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And we know this gospel well, this good news, but let me put it before you again because that is our comfort and that's our reason for joy. Jesus is the one who went to war against all his and our enemies and he obtained the victory. He crushed the head of the enemy. He obtained peace. Right as the psalm says, he maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. He crushes the head of the serpent and then he cries out, It is finished. The victory, obtaining peace for his people, has been obtained. At the very same time, he's also the one who removes the reason for the warfare that existed between God and his people. By nature, we are children of wrath, at enmity against God, at hatred against God. That happened because of man's fall into sin. By nature, we are at war against God. We've sinned against God, and God has reason to be at war with us, to be against us, so that His smile is not upon us, but rather His wrath is upon us. And we are those, as I just said, who by nature hate God. And yet, what does God himself do through this prince of peace? Well, he sends this king, this, this babe, to bear that wrath of God in our place. He sends Jesus to fulfill all the obedience to the law that God required of us. God sends Jesus to obtain for his people a perfect righteous standing before him so that all our sins are removed from us as far as east is from west. And God's smile can and does rest upon us. In Isaiah 53 verse 5, the way that it's put is like this. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Or as other versions put it, upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the idea. God sends Jesus to the cross so that Jesus could open the way for peace. Everlasting peace. And not only does Jesus obtain peace for us through his lifelong obedience and his atoning death on the cross, but Jesus also establishes peace in our hearts. By his Holy Spirit, he actually comes to us. He enters our hearts and he speaks peace to us. He causes us to know in our own hearts that our sins are forgiven. He works within us true repentance so that we turn from our sins. We hate our sins because we love God. So we hate our sins and we turn from our sins. We confess them and we look to the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the only ground and foundation of our salvation. And in that way, God speaks peace to us so that we know and enjoy that we have peace with God. But not only that, not only does he speak peace to us, but he also changes our hearts. He gives us new hearts and he sweetly bends our wills so that we also walk in peace with God. He pours within our hearts a love for God, a love for God's ways. He gives us the mind of God so that we think God's thoughts after him and we walk in peace with God and we enjoy his smile. And not only that, but walking in peace with God in His ways, we also enjoy peace with one another in Jesus Christ. Jesus so changes us as our King that we take on the character of being peacemakers. By nature, we live in malice and envy and hatred and covetousness. We're filled with pride and hatred towards one another. But when the Prince of Priests reigns in our hearts, we become lovers of peace and makers of peace. We love one another, we humble ourselves, we forbear one another and forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. And really, in Jesus Christ, we really have peace with all things. We have peace with all things, because having peace with God, we are assured that all things are ours. For we know that if God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, then he will surely cause all things to work together for our good. And not only that, but in Jesus Christ, we also look forward to the final kingdom of peace in the new heavens and new earth. And beloved, all of this is because of Jesus and what he has done and who he is as the prince, the king of peace. That's what the angels were singing about there over the fields of Bethlehem many years ago. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace toward the men, the people of God's good pleasure. Peace on earth to the people whom God delights in because the Prince of Peace who has come for them to give them peace, he has been born. And that's what we're celebrating because Jesus was born not only for those shepherds, for their peace, but Jesus is born for us. Unto us a son is given and a child is born. To you who are in church this morning, celebrating the birth of Jesus with a true and living faith, to you who see and know who Jesus is as the Christ child, as the incarnate Son of God, 
And to you who know your sins and who look to that babe lying in the manger as your only hope of salvation, you are the people about whom the angels are singing. To you, along with the shepherds, along with Joseph and Mary, along with the wise men and with all God's people, to you the peace of God has been given. Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. And his name? The Prince of Peace. In him you have peace with God. Peace with your creator. Peace with your judge. And you have peace forever. Do you need peace in your life? Do you struggle sometimes to know peace? Bow down to that babe lying in the manger. Look to him as your king. Having him as your mediator, you have peace with God. You can pour out all your burdens and all your cares before God. And he, through the Prince of Peace, will give you that peace that passes all understanding. That's his identity. Well, not only must we see the identity of this Prince of Peace, we also need to consider the government of this Prince. He is the Prince. The government is given to him. The government shall be upon his shoulders, verse 6 says. That means it will be his responsibility to rule. And then verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Now that word government in verses 6 and 7 is just the word for rule. Jesus as the Prince of Peace is given the authority to rule and given the power to rule. He's given the government By divine authority, he comes into this world as the son of David to reclaim this world as his own. He's the second Adam. He comes to save the world. By divine appointment, he battles his way. Right? There's no room for him in this world. There's no room for him in the inn. We know the story. But he battles his way into this world. He he battles his way into his own dominion. He overcomes all the forces of evil, all the powers of opposition, and the principalities and powers that make for war. And he establishes, through that amazing work of his death on the cross, he establishes the foundations of his kingdom through his own blood, his own righteousness. And then having established those foundations, he rises from the dead and he goes to work building his kingdom, gathering his people unto himself, building his kingdom, saving his people. The kingdom, the kingdoms of this world belong to him. And again, that's why Jesus is born in the manger on that Christmas day, that he might claim his kingdom, that he might do warfare against the prince of the power of this world, to cast out the prince of this world. Do you remember the words that the angel spoke to the Virgin Mary when the angel told her she was with child? And the angel said, this is from Luke chapter 1, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. 
He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It's so very similar to what is spoken of here in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And not only does Jesus then die on the cross and establish the foundations of his kingdom, but as I said, he arises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and he receives the kingdom from his Father. Come, sit thou at my right hand. I give you the throne, I give you the scepter, I give you all authority over heaven and earth. Now go and build your kingdom. And what happens throughout all New Testament history? God causes Jesus to sit on the throne until all his enemies are made his footstool. God says to the Prince of Peace, as we sang from Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And every new convert and every born-again Christian is another addition into the kingdom of heaven. And that continues until every last one of the elect of God is gathered in. So that it's just as verse 7 puts it. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will continue to be gathering his people, building his kingdom, until every last elect child of God is brought in. He's building his kingdom. And then what happens after that? Then Jesus comes again on the clouds of heaven. He realizes his perfect victory over all his and our enemies. He casts out all that is evil, all that is opposed to him, all that smacks of hostilities, so that for his people, there will be no more tears. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more spiritual warfare. But he will usher in the new heavens and new earth. And there he will rule over his kingdom with perfect peace and righteousness and love and joy. And at that time also, it will be just as verse 7 puts it. Of the increase or of the abundance, if you understand it that way. Of the abundance of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It will be a kingdom that lasts into the ages. And so you see, it's a kingdom that, that's already here, and yet it's a kingdom that's not yet come. It's already here in the beginning, but not yet in its full realization. But yet already now we enjoy the benefits of Christ's kingdom. We have a king we can run to for help. We have a king who's ordering his kingdom aright. He rules us in righteousness and justice. We have a king who carries out justice. Already now he's my wonderful counselor, my mighty God, my everlasting father. What comfort. I have a king whose power and rule and authority will never be overcome. It, it will never even be challenged in any, in any meaningful way. We know we have a king who knows how to maintain peace and who rules justly. I was thinking about that a little bit this past week. I think one of the greatest burdens that an elder bears, or one of the greatest burdens that any person in authority bears, is the burden to provide justice. To reflect King Jesus in this aspect. 
to bring judgment and justice to the people, to give justice to the people of God. That's hard work. For, for us as, as weak men and women, it, it's hard work. It consumes one. First of all, to know what is the right thing to do, what justice looks like in each case, and then to do it, and then to have the courage to do it, despite what the fallout may be. How, how easy it is to just avoid the issue, right? Shelf it. It's not my problem. Think of what happens at classes. What a burden is on the delegates of classes every meeting again to do justly. For peace's sake. For righteousness' sake. To honor the king. And now we think about that, and my point with, just, with saying that is just this. You have a king who establishes his kingdom with perfect judgment and justice. He is the counselor endowed with all wisdom and knowledge and insight. He is the mighty one who is able to do what is right. He is the compassionate one who takes pity on his people. He is the perfect king. That's who he is as the king of peace. He's everything you could ever want in a leader. His government is a righteous government. To be a citizen of his kingdom Right? That's my identity. When all is said and done, I'm a citizen of His kingdom. I belong to Him. And to be a citizen of His kingdom, to know the gospel that I belong to Jesus, that is for me to know that everything is okay. Everything will turn out right in the end. All wrongs will be righted and Jesus will bring us into that kingdom of perfect peace and satisfaction where this world's struggles and sorrows and warfare are finished and justice and wisdom and truth and righteousness will reign forever and ever. That is comforting, beloved. In this world, we, we only have a dim glow of it, we feel his reign of peace in our hearts already now. We know the peace that comes with knowing Jesus as my king. But there is coming a day when we will enter into the fullness of that kingdom of perfect peace. And that, that's what we're celebrating this morning. Because right there in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, is the king himself. The king has come. He's come to establish his kingdom. Well, we've looked at the identity of this prince. We've looked at the government of this prince from verse 7. But now, at the end of verse 7, the text directs us to look also at the explanation for this prince. The last part of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And those are powerful words, beloved. The zeal. Do you know what that means? the jealousy, or we could even say the passion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, will perform it. Beloved, what is the explanation for the birth of this son? 
What's the only explanation for the birth of the Messiah? Is it because the people deserve it and it's owed to them? Absolutely not. Is it also because this has been accomplished by the strength of the people? Absolutely not. Remember in Isaiah's day, the people were in a weak and pathetic, miserable condition. There was no hope in themselves. The only explanation for the Prince of Peace, the only explanation for his birth and his success and for all that he does is this. It is God's doing. And it's because God is a jealous God. He's jealous, first of all, over his own name. He has put his name upon his covenant people. He has made covenant promises to his own. And now for the jealousy of his own glory, for the zeal of his own name, that all the world may see his power and that all his people may behold his unspeakable grace and mercy, he does it. He does it so that we might cry out with the angels, glory to God in the highest. That's the first reason for it. The explanation for this Prince of Peace. And then second of all, he does it because he is jealous also over his people. Which is to say, God has a profoundly deep, everlasting love for his people. And he has a profound desire to protect and guard and spiritually prosper his people. And out of his love for them, he gives his son. He gives his son to be everything we need him to be. He gives to us and he gives for us that which is most precious to him. His only begotten Son because of His jealousy and His zeal and love for His bride. That's a wonder, isn't it? And again, I want to say, that's why we are celebrating Christmas. Do you see the love of God for you, beloved, this morning hour? Do you see His zeal for you? He Himself has come in the flesh, was born in a manger, born into poverty... so that he might enter into our shame, bear our humiliation, and suffer the curse that was upon us, just so that we might know his smile and enjoy peace with him and dwell with him in that everlasting kingdom of peace. That's the God we have. Well, how does God want us to respond? How does he call us to respond? Well, first of all, he says, believe it. Believe it. Believers in Isaiah's day who were in so much misery, so much sorrow and struggle and turmoil, wicked leaders all around, no peace in the world, believe it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Believe it. Believe it today, believer. Believe it. He wants us to rest in his faithfulness. Enjoy this gift I give you at Christmas time. The gift of my son. That's my present to you. All of grace. And then go to him, beloved. Rest in him as your king. And then also, 
Submit to him and enjoy who he is as your king. And then, how does God call us to respond? Well, believing all these things, he calls us also to respond by glorifying his name. Because that's where his zeal ultimately is too, isn't it? He does all of this because he says, I call you as my children in a special way as believers to bring glory to my name. Singing with our voices, singing with our whole lives, we sing the same words that the angels sang in the night sky above Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to the men, the people of God's good pleasure. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for giving us Jesus as our King. We thank Thee that at Christmas time we are among those who understand what it's all about. Keep us rooted in the gospel, Lord. Keep us continuing to look unto Jesus as our Prince of Peace, as our Lord and King. And may we enjoy the comfort that comes from that. May we also be stirred up to live with conviction the life that these realities call forth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.